Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast we affectionately call Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley, and with me is astronomer at large, Professor Fred Watson. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for using my correct title. It's very gratifying to hear that. Well, I don't like being criticised. That's what it comes down to. I don't like. I don't no. like negative emails. Quite so, yeah. And uh, look, I'm not. To be honest, I'm definitely not hung up on being Professor Watson. Fred is perfectly acceptable. Thank you for saying that, Fred. I appreciate yeah. it. Mm. <laughs> now um, we've got a bit to talk about today. Hayabusa two has landed on a chunk of rock. And um, spectacularly so, and everybody in Japan is uh, really happy. That is until they found out it was the wrong rock. No, kidding. Uh, Virgin Galactic's done another test flight, and uh, very successfully. It's actually quite spectacular, the video that they, uh, they took. Uh, but it's also another uh, amazing first in uh, space travel, which we will talk about. And we've got a question from David Putzia from Oregon, say hello to Homer because he lives in Springfield, uh, about um, how is it that uh, our galaxy is going to crash into the Andromeda galaxy when the universe is expanding? Shouldn't they be actually tearing themselves apart and vanishing off into the, you know, wherever? Uh, so we will answer that, David, because that is a blasted good question, I might add. But first, Fred, uh, Japan's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft has, um, well, I was going to say splashed down, but you don't splash down on an asteroid, and it didn't crash down either, so it was something in between. The, the, the official term is touched down. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't I think of that? Yeah, touchdown. So it did a touchdown, and it's going to do some more as well. Um, so Hayabusa 2, uh, which is currently in orbit around an asteroid called Ryugu, or Ryugu, R-Y-U-G-U. I'm probably not pronouncing it properly, but it's, never mind. It's That's the name of the asteroid. It's um, not a big asteroid. It's less than a kilometre across. It's got a very interesting shape, actually. It's kind of diamond-shaped. And, and that diamond shape is whatever, almost whatever direction you look at it from, it's diamond shape. Um, and that's, you know, really interesting given this, these sorts of issues on the way things look, what we in the trade call morpho morphology, which we were talking about last week. Yes, with, because um, of the um, gingerbread man. Yeah, the gingerbread man, Ultima Thule, that's right. Uh, so this one, I don't really, I think it looks like a child's spinning top, actually, I remember. Oh, I yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was a kid. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, 900 metres in diameter, 
and of great interest because, uh, like all asteroids, it's probably the, 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 the building blocks of the solar system that you're seeing there. And we know from previous work that there's some really interesting compounds on the surfaces of asteroids, um, the, um, what we call organic compounds, things with carbon in them. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, that's all led some people to suspect that perhaps uh, that life came from space, came from an asteroid, the, the raw materials of life. Anyway, to cut to the chase, um, this little spacecraft, which currently is, is orbiting about 20 kilometers from Ryugu, uh, has done a number of things. But it, um, last year, I think it would have been about October last year, it dropped two little uh, rovers on the side. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. This has been quite an extraordinary mission. Has, yeah, and it's not over yet. So um, they have also now um, touched down the spacecraft on the asteroid. And this, you know, we always think of a landing on something as being a bit like when, um, you know, when Elon Musk sends back his booster rockets and you've got things with flames coming out to stop the gravitational pull and break it and touch down gently on a surface. Well, it's a bit like that, but less spectacular on a 900 meter across asteroid because the gravity is next to nothing. Mm. Uh, and so um, you, the, the biggest problem with touching down is avoiding bouncing off again, uh, which is, of course, is what happened with that little Pillai lander on comet uh, of Gerasimenko that we covered a couple of years ago. Yeah, it got uh, a bit bouncy, that one. Got bouncy, that's right. So, but this one seems to have worked. And what they've done, they've, they've sort of landed the spacecraft on the surface of the asteroid. Uh, it's been delayed, the, the, um, the action of doing that. I think it was supposed to happen last October, but they had problems finding a smooth enough bit of the, of the asteroid to land on. Uh, it's covered in rocks and boulders and... The last thing you want to do is land on a tilt because yes. you might get off again. Um, but what they've got they've, on the underneath of the spacecraft, if I can use that term, the underneath in relation to uh, the asteroid itself, there is a, a, a thing called the dust horn. Uh, and it is a horn-shaped um, <laughs> horn tube, I guess. I was going to call it a vessel, but it's not a vessel because it's open at one end, hmm. uh, which lands on the... Uh, spacecraft on the asteroid surface. So this, this horn touches the surface and then, this is the really clever bit, they shoot a bullet into it through the horn. So it lands on the surface and raises a cloud of dust which is captured by the dust horn. Or, uh, to give it its technical name, it's a sampler horn because it takes a sample of the dust of the, of the asteroid. Um, so that, I believe, happened... Uh, last week, uh, maybe even the beginning of this week, actually. It's certainly uh, the week beginning the 25th of February. So uh, that little bullet, uh, it's, it's no mean thing. This thing weighs five grams, which is about bullet, you know, bullet... Uh, bullet size. Uh, bullet mass, yeah. It's made of the metal tantalum. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but I'm sure if I checked out tantalum's atomic weight or something, I know the answer. I think it's quite dense. Um, and it was fired into the surface of the, uh, of the asteroid at a third of a kilometre per second. So that's pretty good going. That's pretty and so fast. the particles uh, hopefully have been caught by that sampler horn. And then the spacecraft retreated back to its sort of safe position in orbit 20 kilometres from the asteroid's surface. Um, what we have seen in terms of images from 
the uh, asteroid itself is a discolored area around where this sample was taken from. And it's not quite clear whether that discoloring is from the exhaust of the rockets when it left the surface to go back up to its uh, 20 kilometer station, or whether it's, you know, sort of splatter from the bullet itself. Ah, uh, okay. So, either, so, either way, we made that mark. Exactly, that's yeah. right. Either way, we made the mark. So very interesting stuff. And the spacecraft is going to remain in orbit around uh, Ryugu for another, I think it's the best part of a year, maybe not quite that long. But it will bring the sample back in 2020, back to Earth. That's when we'll get to see what it's collected uh, in its sampler horn this week. Okay, fabulous. And by the way, the uh, atomic weight of tantalum is 180.94788U. Okay, good, thanks. <laughs> Just thought you'd like to know. I do, yeah. I had that's... to think hard to remember that. I bet you did, yes. It's a, it's a number I don't really carry around in my head, but I'm very glad to see that you do, Andrew. And its atomic yeah. number is 73. Yes, okay, so it's quite a long way down the periodic table. Indeed. Which, by the way, we're celebrating its... Uh, it's sesquicentenary. That's right, yes, mm. later. In fact, next month in March. Yes. Okay, so the, the, now I, I suppose the sideline story to this is that the Japanese are really doing some pretty amazing stuff. We've, we've in fact, we, we've seen quite a few um, relatively new entities into the space race doing things like uh, landing on the moon, um, mm. which the Chinese have just done, and, yeah, and yeah. releasing a rover. And now this, and uh, India's in the game. I mean, it's just getting so exciting, really, isn't it? I absolutely agree. It's, uh, we live in really interesting times, Andrew, um, and I just feel privileged to be watching all this sort of stuff going on, and in particular, uh, for us to be learning things about well, the dark side of the sorry, the far side of the moon, and about uh, a little asteroid after a 300 million kilometer journey by a plucky little spacecraft. You know, they did this before in the mid 2000s with Hayabusa one, yes. and uh, an asteroid. Uh, which, if I remember, was called Itokaya. I think that was its name. Um, and they did take a sample from it. Uh, Itokawa, that was it. Sorry, I got it wrong. Itokawa was the name of the asteroid uh, that Hayabusa 1 landed on in 2005 and brought back some dust from that. And it, that was a really epic story. It, mm. it, had, it got sort of sidelined somehow and nearly went into orbit around Venus, going completely the wrong direction. But they eventually got... <laughs> Back and made it all succeed. It was great stuff. It's worth yeah, it. Yeah, and I suppose the question that sort of manifested itself in my mind when you said that they they think that asteroids could be the way life seeded on Earth with an asteroid impact or something. If these asteroids all sort of like you know we're collecting samples from a few now and getting information from them, if they all start to look like they're a bit samey, then it stands to reason that that's the pattern throughout the universe and maybe other planets have been seeded. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Mm. Um, your logic is impeccable as always, Andrew. Yeah, well, that's a change. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we have to wait till 2020 to, um, to get the dirt back. Yes, what's in it? Yeah, I mean, it, it could be all kinds of things in it. And, yeah. of course, you know, asteroids 
a bit, are a bit of a hot topic because people believe that they might be rich in rare metals and uh, things of that sort, which might make them worth mining. There yes. are at least two companies that have been set up to do that. Yeah, yep. Um, the, the universe is our oyster, by the sound of it. <laughs> You might even find oysters, who knows? You, you might, or pearls for that matter. Mm. All right, uh, I'm sure there'll be more to hear from Hayabusa 2 in the not-too-distant future. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson, Professor. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments, and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree, and governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash Space. That's T R Y E X P R E S S V P N dot com slash space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now, back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we turn our attention to space tourism and Virgin Galactic has uh, just done a, a flight which has been historic for more than one reason. Obviously, it was a success and uh, very spectacular images on the BBC News website if you want to look it up. But uh, something else extraordinary happened here and uh, it involved one of the astronauts. Indeed, that's right. Let me, um, let me um, read what he said when he came back down uh, and landed uh, back in the Mojave Desert. Well, if you're going to quote him, better do the accent. That's what I was going to say. Swelling <laughs> yet smooth and nicely controlled throughout, with a view at the top of the Earth from space, which exceeded all our expectations. I'm sorry, Dave. Dave McCoy. <laughs> really sorry. Probably that was really good. <laughs> really good. Yeah, I can, look, as an honorary Scotsman, uh, I can get away with that usually. <laughs> and he <laughs> is the first ever Scottish astronaut. He is, that's right. As he's, a, and as he's a consequence. Not, yeah, he's from well up in uh, in the north of Scotland, from Helmsdale, which is way up in the Highlands. Well, I there. mean, that's not an achievement because he's close enough to walk. 
That's right. That's right. So he's the first Scottish-born pilot to travel to space. And um, by by space, uh, what Virgin means is I think they mean above 80 kilometres. But mm. this time they've they've gone beyond that. There, um, Dave Mackay took the took the rocket plane up to 90 kilometres. Um, it looks as though it has been an absolutely perfectly successful. Uh, trip and that uh, the footage that we've seen, as you mentioned, there's some nice footage on the BBC news website. Uh, it shows these elated pilots uh, 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 taking the spacecraft up. I think what happens, Andrew, is is the rocket motor. So it's dropped from its um, mothership yep. at about 15 kilometres above the Earth, which is. 40,000 feet-ish or something like that. I can't do the calculation. I'm sure you will in a minute. Um, and it's dropped from that height, and, and then they fire the rocket motor, which I think burns for about 30 or 40 seconds, something like that, uh, accelerating the spacecraft up to a speed that um, basically once the rocket motor cuts out, it coasts the rest of the way up to the uh, what's called the apogee, the point furthest away from the centre of the Earth. Uh, where where the spacecraft turns around and starts coming back again. And so for all that time, when the rocket motor's not firing, until the air brakes start on, the, on its way back down, for all that time, you're weightless. Mm -hmm. And it's about four minutes, I think, the total time. So a great experience. And, you know, seeing things like this, um, what's, what's um, I guess, surprised me a bit, or maybe encouraged me a bit, Andrew, is the fact that this... Uh, the report that we've seen on this is pretty low-key, uh, which is almost Virgin's way of saying, look, guys, this is getting pretty routine. We don't need to make a big splash about it because we're going to be doing this every day soon. So I think it's rather uh, rather an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting dynamic in the in the report. Uh, some good footage, which you and I commented on a few minutes ago. Yes, indeed. Um, and one of the most spectacular spaceships I think I've ever seen. It, it's straight out of a science fiction uh, story, that thing. Um, the, the, the craft is just beautifully winged. It's got a, a single fuselage with a very pointy um, nose and it's got the portals, it's got the rocket engine, it's got the, the, the fins and the wings. I mean, it looks like a, um, a an attack craft from an alien race. I mean, it looks amazing. It's spectacular. It it's definitely a spaceship, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's no, no denying it. I mean, that's what a spaceship should look like. Yeah, it looks a bit different when it's coming down because it folds in half. <laughs> the the um, the wing basically uh, it's what's called a, a canting wing, so it it actually has a hinge all the way along it, and the back half of it folds up almost at a right angle with the the line of the wing to act as an air brake. Mm. Uh, and um, that clearly works very well. Yes, indeed. Um, so where does this put uh, Virgin Galactic in the in the race to put tourists in space? I mean, we've got a couple of entities working on this. This, yeah. this one sounds like it's put them in a pretty good position. I think that's right. Um, I, you know, the, the great thing about Virgin Galactic is they've been completely upfront with all their pluses and minuses. They have... Uh, taken us the whole way, uh, even though for many years we've been hearing that the first commercial flights will be next year. Uh, I do think they have um, handled this with great care uh, and done all they can to ensure the safety of their passengers and to make sure that what they're talking about is actually going to work. And it's mm. a 
you know, it is a good, uh, reliable product. So was uh, this, this basically a test run of what the tourists will actually uh, yeah, pretty experience? Well. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Uh, you just, you, I mean, basically, you go up and then you come down again. But the, um, the you know, for the for their two hundred thousand dollars, which is the, was the initial price for these, uh, you get a bit more than that because you, I think you get a week of training and uh, instruction and just finding out all there is to know about space tourism, and you probably get a few good meals and a couple of nice glasses of wine, I would imagine. Yeah, you have to eat it all out of a tube, but it's still fun. <laughs> that's on the ground, not in the in the sky. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. Mm. Now, and one interesting thing that you uh, noticed uh, in the footage on the BBC News website was uh, there, there were two pilots, uh, including um, Dave Mackay, the, uh, the Scottish yeah, astronaut, awesome. and they were all in their gear. I mean, they had the pressure suits on and their helmets and they were all wired up and, you know, they had the breathing apparatus. And then there was a guy in the back seat with a pair of sunglasses on and he had, he had no protective gear whatsoever. And um, I thought you were seeing things, so I watched again, and sure enough, this head pokes up with a pair of sunnies on, and I gleaned from the situation because there was one piece of footage showing from behind the pilots, and I thought, ah, he's a cameraman. So mm. they didn't actually have a fixed camera. They had a bloke with a camera, I think, and sure that's it who the cameraman was. You sure it wasn't a camera girl? No, it was definitely a guy. All right. I didn't see. I didn't catch a good enough look at uh, the person in question. But what's interesting is that he had no protection whatsoever. I mean, he didn't no. have a helmet. He didn't have a pressure suit on. He was just, you know, in a t-shirt, a, a pair of stubbies. Uh, and I figured out why. All right. Whenever it comes to um, to journalism, and you're out there with a the cameraman, and you're taking <laughs> footage of uh, a nuclear attack or a Taliban attack, or the cameraman is expendable because you can grab the camera and still get the footage. The cameraman doesn't matter. So that's that's why he wasn't wearing a pressure suit. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies to all camera people. Yeah. They do a great right. job, and sometimes they do dangerous work. And I'd say going yeah. up there under those circumstances is probably a high-risk venture. I imagine his life insurance would not have paid out. Yeah, maybe not. Who knows? Anyway. Uh, as long as he had his seatbelt on, that's all right. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's great footage, and if you want to see it, um, go to the BBC website because uh, it's uh, it's only a short piece of footage, about 55 seconds, but you'll get a real insight into what Virgin Galactic's doing, and that spaceship is... I want awesome. it. <laughs> I want it in my garage, desperately. If it turns up in your garage, you're going to be in big trouble, Andrew, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, I don't think my insurance premiums would stay very low for very long yeah um anyway uh, um, it's a, a giant leap forward for virgin galactic this is space nuts andrew dunkley here with fred watson of course okay we checked all four systems and being with a go space nuts as has become our habit we turn to the audience and uh, answer a question and this one came uh, from David Putzia from Springfield, Oregon. And David asks, okay, so the universe is expanding. Not only is it expanding, but the expansion is getting faster and faster and faster. Sorry, David, you're wrong. It's getting faster and 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 not slowing down at all. Uh, so how then is our Milky Way galaxy going to get hit by the Andromeda galaxy? 
I think we're going to hit them, David. Uh, the expanding space of the universe should be moving them away from each other, right? Wrong? Is it just that the overall gravitational attraction between them is so great that it is overpowering this expansion? What a great question. And David's basically given us the answer as well. <laughs> well, thank you, David, and thank you, uh, Fred. We'll see you all next week. Time, yeah. Um, it's no, it's exactly what it is. That um, it, the, it, there's a little bit more to it. The gravitational attraction's strong enough to overpower the expansion. The bottom line is that over distances like the two and a half million light years that separates ourselves, our own Milky Way galaxy from the Andromeda galaxy, and they're, they're rather similar galaxies. The Andromeda one might be a little bit bigger than ours, but they're both pretty big. Poppy dog. We're bigger. But, yeah. over, over the distance between them, which is, as I said, two and a half million light years, the, the effect of the expanding universe is negligible. It's really only when you start looking at tens of millions, hundreds of millions, billions of light years that you see the effect of the expansion. Um, for two things close together, if they're sitting in an expanding universe, the expansion is not going to do much uh, in terms of separating them, particularly when you've got two massive objects like this, uh, each with about 400 billion stars and probably the same again in um, if, if not much more in terms of uh, the mass of other components like the dark matter and the and the other stuff so, so we they, might think it's a long way down the street to the chemist but <laughs> that's right <laughs> the distance so, between our galaxies is is barely a, a glitch in terms of universal expansion that's right so so the the, the two galaxies um, because they're big, they've got strong gravitational attraction, they are falling towards one another, um, and the expansion of the universe really doesn't do anything uh, to separate them. Um, it's, in some ways, it's a bit like, um, I've always drawn the analogy, it's not a very good one, actually, but if you imagine <laughs> people uh, on a, in rowing boats on a river, uh, you can row fast enough that you can overcome the flow of the river so you, you know you might have a flow that's trying to pull you and your, your adjacent rowing boat apart but if you pull hard enough you'll get back together and it's a bit like that with with gravity and galaxies um there's there's a little bit more subtlety to this the the overall expansion due to sorry the overall movement uh, of objects uh, due to the expansion of the universe we say that they are uh, they are participating in the Hubble flow. That's the name of it. We call it the Hubble flow. Uh, it's, as I say, it's like the flow of a river. That's the flow of space getting bigger. But in addition to being carried along by the Hubble flow, distant galaxies at very great distances also have their own velocities, um, which are, you know, velocities um, that are sort of superimposed on the Hubble flow like the, the rowing motion that I just mentioned. Uh, they've got a name as well. It's a slightly peculiar name because they're called peculiar velocities. And what that means is these are the velocities peculiar to the galaxy. So each galaxy has its own peculiar velocity, the velocity that's peculiar to it. But in addition to that, it's being carried along by the Hubble flow. And if you've got peculiar velocities like the, the Andromeda and the galaxy and the Milky Way galaxy, um, you can think of them as having a peculiar velocity towards each other uh, which is far more than, than the Hubble flow is 
Okay. The impact is the impact is expected in about. Well, let me put it more subtly. The first impact is expected in about three and a half billion years. And we now know from really careful measurements that have been made by the Gaia spacecraft. This is a space probe that looks at the the super accurate positions of stars in the sky. And they can actually see the sort of crosswise motion of the Andromeda galaxy with respect to ourselves, as well as the towards and away motion, which is the easy one to detect. And it turns out that we will make a glancing blow of the Andromeda galaxy in 3.5 billion years. And that will probably mean that the two galaxies, they'll, they'll sort of, you know, they'll graze one another and then they'll start spiraling around one another, probably come back and have another collision in another couple of billion years and then two or three more after that. And uh, eventually um, we'll settle down to something that doesn't probably have the beautiful spiral structure that both our galaxy and the Milky Way has. It'll be a, a much more uniform mass of stars. We're now talking 10, 20 billion years down the track. Um, in fact, it'll probably be a bit boring. Uh, it, what what, the, uh, what the, the collision will do, though, is it'll stir up the gas in both our own and the Milky Way galaxy and essentially trigger a whole lot of star formation. So if there's any, you know, if there are any people watching our distant descendants, um, we'll see lots of supernovae. These are supermassive or massive stars that explode uh, very dramatically. There'll be lots of that going on because star formation tends to generate supernovae as well as normal stars. So it'll be an exciting time for anybody who's still around. And assuming the human race does survive, I imagine we will have found a way to visit the Andromeda galaxy before we even come close to colliding with it. I, I, I think that is the next progression. We're going to find ways of overcoming these distance issues to a certain degree, I think. That's because you're a science fiction writer, Andrew, and, yes. it's in your, and it's in your DNA to hope that we can overcome that. And it was in David's DNA to consider <laughs> that such a small distance between galaxies was infinitesimal. But yep. um, in the scheme of things, David, you just weren't thinking big enough, really. Well, but he's, he's got the right answer in the but end. He's got it's, the right answer in the question, yeah. Right. So um, brilliantly done, David. Well done. And, um, yeah, I hope that uh, answered your question. It's, um, yeah, it's just too small a distance to be a factor in the expansion of the universe, quite simply. We could have said that and saved ourselves seven minutes. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, said, it, it does prompt another question in my mind. So um, Andromeda's uh, going to be a hit, boom, boom, with us. Uh, are there any other galaxies that are likely to become uh, collision-worthy in the distant future? Well, in, actually, in the nearer future, the two uh, dwarf galaxies that are quite close to us, much closer than Andromeda, their distances are... Um, hun- the nearest one's about 160,000 light years away. These are what are called the Large and Small Magellanic Clouds. They're oh, the yeah. two patches of the fuzzy patches in our southern hemisphere sky they're very beautiful actually when you see them in a dark sky and they just look like broken off bits of the milky way Uh, they are currently being eaten up by our own galaxy so they are in the process of colliding now that collision is um, a lot gentler because these are smaller objects but it's still a collision nevertheless and um uh, you know, the, the end product of that is going to be a lot more stars in what's called the halo of our galaxy. That's the, the region away from the disk, the sort of spherical region where a lot of older stars hang out. 
But as you and I have discussed, even with the Andromeda collision, it's not going to be a catastrophic collision. It's just going to be so slow and so graceful. It'll everyone will just sort of get out of each other's way. It'll it, it yeah. won't cause any problems really. There'll, there'll, there'll be, it's very unlikely there'll be any direct collisions between stars. It'll just be for a million years or so. There'll be all this excitement with a lot of star formation, and that could be dangerous because uh, if you've got supernovae going off everywhere, they uh, emit uh, copious quantities of radiation of all kinds. Yeah, you don't want to be near that. You don't want to be near that. It's no. like opening the uh, microwave door before the beeps have stopped, so just <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> right, yes. And then reporting it in the news as some kind of alien technology or alien <laughs> alien message. They were called peritons uh, <laughs> at parks. They thought they picked up... In fact, there are these things called fast radio bursts, which we, we've talked about before. And the, and the um, yes, the opening the, the microwave door actually mimicked exactly what one of them looked like. Uh, it's one of the great stories in astronomy. Yeah. Indeed it is. That and the colour of the universe, which was also... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that was embarrassing, that. It? <laughs> I love it. I, think I, saw the guy, I saw the guy who made that mistake, actually, last week at a conference. Did you? He's doing very well. He's That's a very good. eminent scientist in Australia now, but he did get the colour of the universe wrong yes. for a while. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, that's, these things happen. These things happen. Uh, and uh, thank you again, David, for your question. We appreciate it. We, we love all your questions. We, we're going to try and get through them. We might have to dedicate yet another episode to questions only because uh, they've piled up a bit. Yeah, there's but, some um, good ones too. Yeah, there's some rippers, yeah, absolute rippers. I've lost them all, so that's why we haven't done so it. I've still got them. You're <laughs> good. <laughs> I've got to find a better cataloging system. <laughs> and thank you, Fred. It's always great fun. And good fun to talk to you too, and we'll speak again next week. We will indeed. Fred Watson, astronomer at large. He's a professor, and I'm not, but uh, we will be back next week with another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.